Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 382, Bros Before Thrones. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Gear, Micah, and Nora for signing up already. It was 1065, and King Edward of England was falling ever more ill. To the north, King Harald Hedrada reigned over Norway. His war with King Swain of Denmark was over, and now he found himself with some free time to look into other territories he liked to rule. And England made that list. King Malcolm III was reigning in Scotland, and Big Head was one of the most powerful kings that Scotland had seen in generations. And only recently, he'd raided northern England, an action that appears to have been a retaliation for the English crown breaking the betrothal between Malcolm and Princess Margaret. But now, he was married to Ingeborg, a high-born and well-connected Scandinavian noblewoman, and in doing so, he further tied himself not to England, but to his continental allies. Across the Channel, in Normandy, Duke William the Bastard was starting to come into his own. His early ducal reign had been a bit of a shit show, and honestly, the mid-ducal reign wasn't any better. But now, that torrent of palace intrigue, blood feuds, wars, and rebellions were dying down. An uncharacteristic period of calm was falling on Normandy which meant that William was at a place where his power was stabilizing, and as such, he was free to look into other things he might like to do. Other things, like maybe reign as a king. In England, there were the Godwinsons, and chief among them were Harold Godwinson, Queen Edith, and Tostig Godwinson. Now granted, in England, there were also a lot of lesser lords, including the sons of Elfgar of Mercia, but it was the Godwinsons, those Godwinsons, who were really running the show. And what a shit show it was. As we discussed last episode, Harold's activity in 1064 are a matter of serious scholarly debate. And due to the nature of the way that these stories come to us, with accounts built upon the mistakes and fibs of earlier accounts, nobody can say for certain what happened with Harold in 1064. But it's likely that he did spend part of it with William of Normandy. And it's also likely that it didn't go well. No matter which version of the story you take, the subtext of the tales, of all of the tales, was that William was dangerous and that Harold knew it. We can argue about whether they went hunting or pushed around Duke Conan or did a shady oath over some relics under duress. There's plenty in the tales that we can debate and ask whether or not this thing or that thing was a literary flourish. But it's highly likely that whatever happened, Harold saw that the Duke of Normandy was formidable, militaristic, and a man to be feared. And more than once, he had shown himself to be unrepentantly ruthless. So I get why Edward looks so angry in the bio-tapestry. And if he didn't actually chastise Harold... He damn well should have, because this whole mess had really put England in it. And as I mentioned last episode, 
we're now in the period where Harold begins to look panicked. His actions become rushed and frenetic. And honestly, that's saying something, because Harold was already known for being a bit reckless. His success, much like Williams actually, had a lot to do with his incredible audacity and his willingness to make bold moves at a moment's notice. They're actions that speak of just a staggering amount of self-confidence. And Harold and William were similar in this regard. They were comfortable with power, and they believed very much in their capacity to wield it to whatever ends they could imagine. And it's interesting that once these two men met, Harold became noticeably more bombastic. Now, his recent successful campaign in Wales had broken that region, and as such, it removed a serious threat to the English crown. But Wales, paradoxically, actually had a history of propping up English nobles, who, at one point or another, had found themselves up to their neck in trouble. Harold's own family had a personal history with that, as did Elfgar. And this odd symbiosis with England had been recurring for centuries. We can look back all the way to the early Anglo-Saxon period and find times where Wales was sheltering Northumbrian princes, who later became kings. And actually, much of the conflict that Wales had with Ireland appears to have had a lot to do with the fact that on occasion they would provide safe harbor for various disfavored nobles out of Ireland. And honestly, it went both ways. Welsh nobles would sometimes go to Ireland or England. This is just kind of how it went, which meant... If you were an English nobleman who was, oh, I don't know, worried that some French psychopath might be eyeing England for some speculative real estate investments, well, having a fallback in Wales, or even better, having a compliant Wales that could come to your aid, well, that wasn't the worst idea in the world. And so I'm not at all surprised to read that in 1065, Harold was pouring a ton of money into a building project in Port Skewit, which was a town in southeastern Wales that was just across the Severn from Portishead in England. And in particular, Harold was building a hunting lodge. Now, that might strike you as a bit strange, since if you're nervous about some beardless bastard leading an invasion with his beardless baguette-eating friends, you probably want to burr with thick walls and a well-trained garrison, not you know, a fancy lodge staffed with courtiers who attend to your frills while you go out and terrorize some deer. But there actually was some logic to this. See, Wales wasn't a military fallback. It was, if anything, a political one. If things went bad, Harold would need somewhere to retreat to and gather supporters. He didn't need the Taft version of Helm's Deep. He needed a safe house. Moreover, Port Skewit wasn't just any random spot in Wales. Now, of course, the English sources will absolutely give you that impression. I read one recently that asserted quite simply that Port Skewit was a convenient harbor for Harold, which is sort of like describing the 18th century American South as consisting of a lot of agricultural workers who supported a robust textile industry. I mean, it's technically true, but you're missing some f***ing context there, aren't you? And if you recall, the Welsh had a particular way of organizing their society upon the landscape. Their social and political world revolved around the Mair Drefi, the accessible locations that everyone knew and could reach reliably. 
The Meyer-Dreffy functioned as the cultural, legal, and administrative centers of their region, and they were inextricably tied to the local ruling dynasty and their people. And Port Skewit was a Meyer-Dreffy. And it wasn't just any Meyer-Dreffy. It was ancient. And then Harold Godwinson decided to plonk down an English hunting lodge on that specific spot. Now, Harold was many things, but he doesn't appear to have been stupid or ignorant. And so I'm confident that he knew what this location was. And I'm confident that he also knew what the implication was with what he was doing, especially when you take into account the timing. He wasn't building a handy place to go hunting. He was making a colonial act. Harold had defeated their king. He'd carved up their lands. And now he was building his own lavish residence on the site of an ancient royal estate. Harold was displaying his power. It was an ostentatious demonstration that while Wales no longer had a king, there still was Harold. And he was occupying the same place that their king once had done as a holiday home. Bold? Yes. Confident? Definitely. Reckless to the point of being completely offensive to absolutely everyone? Oh, fuck yeah. And the Welsh, including King Caradog ab Gruffith ab Rhyderc of Gwent, could not believe the balls on this guy. Who did he think he was? The trouble, though, was that Harold did know who he was. He was the most powerful nobleman in England. He was the man who just shattered Wales. He was the man who had just played a direct hand in appointing rulers over Wales as if he was some sort of overking. And who knows, maybe he was. I mean, no one had stopped him. And what were the Welsh going to do about this? I mean, if King Caradog responded he very well could be dragging Gwent into war with the whole of England. But on the other hand, this was Port Skewit. This was their ancient Myrdrefi. So King Caradog turned to his men, those that were still standing after the brutal cleansing campaigns that had just been carried out by Harold and his brother. And I'm guessing that Caradog barely got past the so about Harold before his men asked where they should muster. And so... On August 24th of 1065, King Caradog and the men of Gwent rode out to Port Skewit, and they overran the lodge and slaughtered all the Englishmen who'd been brought in to work there, and then they burned the building to the ground. Harold had come to Wales to flex, to demonstrate to those within his borders and without the scale of his power, and in the end, all he had to show for it was a boatload of dead Englishmen, the destruction of his own property, and an act of war by Gwent. He didn't even get the chance to go hunting with King Edward, because the king had instead decided to go to Wiltshire and hunt with Harold's brother, Tostig. <laughs> Though on the bright side, given how sick Edward was by this point, I'm guessing the only thing that Tostig was hunting for was a warm blanket and some broth for the king. And as for King Edward's response to this act of war by Gwent, there was no declaration of war. There wasn't even a punitive raid. There was nothing. And version D of the Chronicle adds one ominous line to this whole affair. It says, quote, 
We do not know who first suggested this conspiracy, end quote. And I can't stop thinking about that line. Because what King Caradog did can be understood on a cultural level. But strategically, it's hard to imagine why he would undertake such an enormous risk. I mean, England had just broken Wales. So it's terrifying to imagine what would happen to Gwent if it was just left there standing alone. But maybe they weren't alone. Version D of the Chronicle certainly implies they weren't. And that could go a long way towards explaining why there wasn't a royal response to what King Caradog did. Furthermore, there wasn't a Godwinson response either. Harold appears to have acted like this didn't even happen. And I gotta tell you, like version D, I don't know who first suggested this conspiracy or who was involved. But if there was a conspiracy, the part that the Chronicle would have been concerned about would be the English side of it. And I can think of a few possible suspects. Earl Edwin of Mercia had plenty of reasons to dislike Harold and want to see his power undercut. So did King Edward, for that matter. And so, it turns out, did Tostig. We actually have entire poems written about how much Tostig disliked his brother. It isn't clear when things went bad, but they were bad now. In fact, it was so bad that when talking about these two, poets will sometimes reference the biblical tales of Cain and Abel, or Greek tragedies like Oedipus, to go and convey just how much these two hated each other, and how bad this family feud had become. So, it is interesting that as soon as the hunting lodge was burned, Tostig was graced a royal visit. Now, of course... This could just be because the king was mad at Harold about that whole Normandy business. Or maybe Tostig had just a great backup spot to torment some deer. But regardless, the king was in Tostig's lodge and not in the lodge of his brother. Which, you know, was now a burning ruin. No one knows what conspiracy version D was referencing. But Harold wasn't looking good right now. So if there was a conspiracy... It was an unqualified success. And at the same time, everything was coming up Tostig. Well, everything was coming up Tostig if you looked at it from a very specific angle. That angle being from the hunting lodge in Wiltshire. If you looked at it from any other angle, however, things were actually looking pretty dire. Because 200 miles away, in the lands that Tostig was supposed to be governing, basically everyone was mad at him. The nobles were mad. The commoners were mad. The clergy were mad. Everyone was mad. And for pretty obvious reasons. Tostig had been heavy-handed with Northumbria. He'd been disrespectful of Northumbrian cultural norms. He'd repeatedly drug Northumbria into southern political issues. And he was now taxing the bejesus out of them to pay for campaigns that only benefited his southern family. Not only that, but version C of the Chronicle claims he was robbing God, which usually means he was taxing or outright seizing property from the church. So it wasn't just the nobility and commoners that he was taxing. It was also the clergy. And hell hath no fury like a priest who can't afford a new chasuble. Exacerbating the situation, 
Tostig and his officers had no respect for sanctuary. He believed that sanctuary would allow anyone and everyone to avoid justice if it was honored. And consequently, there are stories of how if a church provided a criminal sanctuary, Tostig's Reeves and other officers would just break in. And you can imagine how well that went over. Furthermore, Tostig apparently thought so little of the Northumbrians that lately he'd been appointing Danes to act as his officers and inner circle. In fact, he didn't even deign his subjects worthy to host the king, since apparently this prick had decided to go to Wiltshire for his fancy hunting trip instead of inviting the king to come here and traumatize some good local Yorkshire deer. Which is just rude. And you can bet that when he comes back from this latest extravagant southern trip, he'll hand the bill off to his Northumbrian subjects. So yeah, this guy. And John of Worcester adds something else. There was a Northumbrian thane named Gospatrick, and he'd found himself on Tostig's bad side. Which, you know, is not too shocking. But then Tostig's sister, Queen Edith, treacherously ordered the execution of Thane Gospatrick. And that wasn't all. Recently, Earl Tostig had met with a couple of his other thanes. Gamel, son of Orm, and Ulf, son of Dolphin. And this meeting was under a pledge of peace. No violence was to be had. And there, in Tostig's own chambers, the Earl slew both of his own thanes in affront to that pledge of peace. And John adds that it was Tostig who had begun the violence. Even in the bloody and full-contact world of Northumbrian politics, that counted as murder. So now the Northumbrian nobility weren't just irritated, their lives were in danger. Tostig was out of control. And so while he was living it up in Wiltshire, his thanes were busy at home, discussing how to fix this little matter of a southern tyrant in the north. And John tells us that at the center of this rebellion were three thanes named Gamelbirn, Dunstan, son of Athelnoth, and Glaniern, son of Herdwolf, who, if I'm being honest, sound a lot like characters in Lord of the Rings. But it was these three thanes who formed the Fellowship of the Ass-Kicking. And meanwhile, at York... Tostig's hand-picked Danish housecarls, Amund and Ravenswart, were going about their duties. You know, probably collecting taxes, discussing the quality of the local kartoffler, that sort of thing. And then suddenly, Gamelburn, Dunstan, Glaniarn, along with 200 angry armed Northumbrians, appeared on the horizon. Now, York isn't just some random undefended village. It's York. This was a fortified and defensible town. It had seen its share of battles, and it still stood. And sure, 200 armed and angry men are a terrifying sight if you're walking through the woods alone. But the walls of York could easily hold off that number of soldiers. Provided, of course, that the garrison did their duty. And I suppose that Amund and Ravenswort weren't feeling all that confident with where the sympathies of their compatriots lay because the housecarls fled the safety of the city walls and tried to escape. But they were captured and quickly put to death just outside of those same city walls. On that day, or the following day, 
the rebels gained possession of the city. I find it very interesting to read of what they did next. Because they didn't burn it down. They didn't loot homes within York or kill local workers or merchants. No, they went straight for Tostig's treasury. They wanted the goods and currency that had been extracted from the public. They were getting their stuff back. But that being said, this wasn't a nonviolent uprising by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, we're told that on the second day of this rebellion, the rebels killed more than 200 of the, quote, Earl's tenants, end quote, on the north side of the Humber. Now, considering how often 200 is used in this account, I suspect that 200 is John's code for a large number of people. But this tenant thing gives me pause. And it's been interpreted in some accounts to be Tostig's household, which is possible. Though it would be a massive household in that case, and we'd be left to wonder why the scribes thought it was necessary to mention which side of the Humber they were on. Furthermore, why hadn't the household fled like those two housecarls? So I'm not sure if it was Tostig's household. And I do wonder if what this part of the record is referring to are literal tenants of Tostig's. I mean, it's possible that Tostig wasn't just importing Danes as his officers. He might have also been settling them on his lands, with the assumption that they would be more loyal to him than the local Northumbrians. It wouldn't be the first or the last time that a hostile ruler would bring settlers in to help him hold on to power. Furthermore, we don't know the manner in which these tenants were killed. Was this a battle, or was it a slaughter of people in their homes and buildings? All we're told is that more than 200 tenants were killed to the north of the Humber. And it's genuinely hard to tell whether this was partisan violence, ethnic violence, a political battle, or some combination. But whoever these people were, and however many of them died, the actions that were taken by the uprising were met with widespread support in the north. We're told that all the Northumbrian thanes and virtually all the fighting age men of Northumbria came to join the rebellion. And with all the thanes of Yorkshire gathered, they held a council where they declared Tostig an outlaw and agreed to send a messenger to Mercia and request that Morcar, the son of Earl Elfgar of Mercia and the younger brother of the new Earl Edwin of Mercia, come north and govern over them. And I have to tell you, I love the pragmatism of this. Because at the end of the day, this Council of Northumbrian Nobles was a Council of Northumbrian Nobles. And that meant that there were grudges, blood feuds, and hurt feelings among each and every one of them that probably stretched back centuries. Agreeing that Tostig was the worst and needed to go, that was the easy part. Discussing who should lead Northumbria after he was gone, on the other hand, was dangerous as hell. And honestly, it's hard to imagine that they ever would have been able to agree on a particular local dynasty getting the nod. But even if they had, and it was your dynasty, would you have wanted that job? I mean, how long before you find a knife in your back because of something your great-grandfather did? No, it's way better to go for a third party. And picking someone who was too young to have much baggage himself and who could still be molded? Well, that was even better. I have to hand it to them. The Northumbrians here did an excellent job of setting aside their pride and honestly assessing their own limitations and flaws. 
absolutely commendable self-awareness and maturity. And even better, Tostig actually had a long-standing feud with Morcar and his brother Edwin. So it was also a spin in the eye to Tostig. Though, on the other hand, by this point, it's probably easier to list off who Tostig didn't have a feud with. Though the good news here is that Earl Edwin of Mercia already had a good reason to be sympathetic to the Northumbrian cause. And by asking his younger brother to become the new Earl of Northumbria, the rebels were presenting Edwin of Northumbria with a compelling case to throw himself in behind their cause. And that's before you even get into the fact that the Godwins as a whole had also been feuding with their family for years. They'd even been involved in the exile of Morcar and Edwin's father twice. They're also involved in the death of their family's ally, King Gruffith of Wales. So they had plenty of reasons to actually quite like what was being offered here. And do you remember how in the last episode, I mentioned that Harold had been trying to make nice with Earl Edwin and drive a wedge between Mercia and Wales, but how a winning smile wasn't enough to overcome his behavior and how that was creating problems for him? Well, this is part of what I was talking about. Because when Earl Edwin and Morcar got the message from the rebels, their response was, oh, hell yeah. And Edwin immediately set about assembling troops. And critically, it wasn't just Mercian Ferdsmen he was assembling. He gathered Welsh troops. Because Harold could glad hand all he wanted. But the Welsh remembered. And one of the things they remembered was what those Godwinsons had done to them. Time for some payback. Morcar, meanwhile, had joined with the rebels, and he was now leading the army. First, they went to Nottinghamshire, then to Derbyshire, then Lincolnshire, then on to Northamptonshire. And there, they joined up with Earl Edwin, his troops, and also the Welsh. And it was there at Northamptonshire that Earl Harold, accompanied by others that had been sent by the king, met with the army and sought terms. John says that Harold sought, quote, a settlement between them, end quote. The implication being a settlement between the people of Northumbria and Tostig. We're told the Northumbrians unanimously refused, and instead outlawed Tostig a second time, along with, quote, all who had taken part with him in his unjust government, end quote. The Vita tells us that the rebels sought the king's assent for Morcar becoming their earl. And we're told that Earl Harold's response was to try and buy some time, basically doing that trick that all hostage negotiators do. Oh, that's above my pay grade. I'll have to talk you through with the boss, so can you give us some time? Do you want some pizza? You seem hungry. That sort of thing. And so Harold mounted up and he went to meet with the king. And the rebellion, which was less a rebellion now and more of a multinational army, decided to incentivize the earl to hustle up on that request. So they rode out and they killed anyone who had any connection to Tostig who lived in the area. Now, given how these things tend to go in history, my suspicion is that any in the five boroughs who didn't join the rebellion was now suspect and assumed to be in Tostig's camp. And we're told that the killing was extensive and without trial. We're also told that for as many as they killed, they captured far more and kept them as slaves, which they then sent north along with thousands of cattle. Afterwards, 
They burned the fields, the homes, and anything else they could get their hands on. And incidentally, remember this when you think of civil wars. Because we often recast those events in romantic and heroic terms, where only the wrongdoers get hurt and things improve for everyone else. But often, it's much more like this, where people who did nothing wrong are having their houses burned, and children are being orphaned, and folks are getting sold into slavery. Civil wars and rebellions are ugly. And we're told that the slaughter and ravaging of the land proceeded all throughout the earldom, going as far south as Oxford. And it was there, at Oxford, that the king's messengers met once again with the rebel army. And the king pleaded with them to stop pillaging the country and to instead take their concerns before the law. He promised that he would right every wrong and address every injury that they could prove. The rebels sent back a simple response. Before anything else could be addressed, the king and his council must first exile Tostig out of England. We're told this demand was sent out on October 28th. King Edward held a council at Britford, near Salisbury. And the purpose of this council was to decide how to handle this rebellion. And the assembled nobility were pissed. In particular, they were pissed at the Godwinsons. Some were accusing Earl Harold of instigating the rebellion himself, because apparently random false flag accusations are nothing new. Now, Earl Harold denied this under oath, but if our modern era is anything to go on, I'm guessing that the noblemen who levied that charge were not convinced. Meanwhile, others were accusing Earl Tostig of being the cause of this due to his cruelty, his greed, and his generally unjust behavior. And I don't know if Tostig took an oath denying that charge, but I'm guessing he didn't, because otherwise he probably would have been struck dead by a bolt of lightning. Because yeah, that seems to have been exactly what caused this rebellion, and it was now threatening to destroy all of England. So from the sound of it, pretty much everyone was angry. Some were mad at Harold, some were mad at Tostig, I assume some were probably mad with Queen Edith and King Edward. Everyone was mad. And while bending and exiling Tostig, as the rebels demanded, seemed like the most obvious course of action, there was just one small problem. He was a Godwinson. And the fact was that so was the chief nobleman of England, as well as the Queen of England, and a variety of other nobles in England. And then he had all the Godwinson allies as well. King Edward had never done all that well when he went against this family. And lately, he'd been sick, and so it was unlikely that he was going to do any better. So, despite the fact that pretty much no one seems to have liked Tostig, the king decided to stand by his man, which meant that the rebels' demands were refused. And rather than Tostig, they would get a war instead. And so the king summoned his army. Well, he summoned part of his army. I mean... Northumbria obviously wasn't going to answer the call. And actually, Mercia wasn't about to pick up the phone either, since they'd mostly joined Northumbria. And good luck getting any Welshmen to hang out. They were either neutral on the whole thing, or, you guessed it, on Team Northumbria. So the king summoned mostly just Wessex and East Anglia. But then again, a lot of nobles down in the south knew the Godwinsons. In fact, they attended that council 
which meant they had feelings about who was to blame for this rebellion. Feelings that were strong enough that they were willing to say them in open court and feelings that tended to put the blame on either one Godwinson or the other. So you can imagine how excited they were about the idea of marching out into the rain to die for Tostig. Especially since the two military powerhouses of England were united against him. But the order had gone out. And so the king was waiting. And waiting. And waiting. Now, to be fair, some did muster when called. But it was less than hoped, and far less than what would be needed to win this war. And they waited for a long time. Nearly two months. And just before Christmas of 1065, it was clear to everyone that King Edward had lost this war before they even had a chance to fight it. It was over. They had no choice but to accept the rebels' demands. And Tostig his wife Judith, and a number of their thanes and officers were exiled from England. And upon this exile, Tostig's feud with his brother, such that it was, became murderous. And the records imply that Tostig blamed his brother for his recent fall from power. And you can see why Tostig would have felt that way. Time after time, Tostig had been asked to take a hit for the team. His marriage to Judith had been to heal a political rift that had nothing to do with him. And so even his marriage bed was just a pawn in the family squabbles. Furthermore, when it was time for Tostig to inherit an earldom, he was passed over. Why? Because that inheritance would have gotten in the way of Harold's ambitions. And then later, when he did finally get some lands and titles, it wasn't what he was originally owed. He wasn't given East Anglia. No, that ended up going to his younger brother. Instead, Tostig had been given Northumbria. And while many would have looked at that as a much better position, considering the level of wealth and military power that Northumbria provided, I suspect that over the last 10 years, Tostig had come to believe that the appointment to this rebellious and bloodthirsty region was a poisoned pill. And now... When Tostig needed his family's support the most, when his subjects and even members of the Witan were turning against him, Harold did nothing. How many times had they rescued one of the family from the flames? How many times had they flexed their muscles and prevented catastrophe for one of their own? The list seemed endless, especially when it came to Swain or Harold. But they wouldn't lift a finger for Tostig. Never. For Tostig. Especially when Harold's ambitions were on the line. And these days, Harold very much wanted to be king. So I suspect that Tostig was getting deja vu. And he was watching in horror as his brother once again left him to the wolves. Because doing anything else would get in the way of his own plans. But honestly, it's difficult to imagine what Harold could have done to prevent this exile. I mean, he was powerful, but he wasn't a god. Even if we assume that Edward was too weak, and he was too sick to do much, and that Harold was basically ruling in all but name, the fact of the matter was, even then, Harold had to answer to the Witan. It wasn't just that Harold's path to the crown lay through the Witan. 
There is also the fact that the Witan was a powerful political player in English politics. And if they didn't support your actions, then you were stuck, as had been so thoroughly demonstrated when Edward recently called his army and barely anyone showed up. And if the English Witan was convinced that Tostig had governed Northumbria poorly, and they wanted the earldom to go to Morcar instead, I'm not sure what Tostig expected Harold to do about it. And let's be real here. If you're too murderous for the Northumbrian nobility, it's probably time to take a good hard look in the mirror and consider who's really to blame. But Tostig was too busy for introspection. He had things he needed to arrange. Because as anyone in the mid-11th century knew, King Edward might have the power to exile nobles, but he didn't have the power to make it stick. Over and over and over again, the king had been forced, often at sword point, to eat his own words. And if Tostig played his cards right and gathered the right set of friends, by the end of this, it might be him who's the most powerful man in England, not Tostig's backstabbing, ungrateful, disloyal brother Harold. Because he had to have known this exile wouldn't be forever. It might not even be for a year. All Tostig needed was supporters. And, much like his older brother Swain, while the English weren't all that fond of him, he had plenty of foreign friends he could turn to. So Tostig was on his way to his father-in-law's domain, Flanders. From there, he could easily send messages to figures like King Malcolm of Scotland, who had become a good friend of his over the years. And considering how the English crown had previously broken a betrothal with Malcolm, the Scottish king might be interested in what Tostig had to say. Furthermore, King Harold Hadrada was just to the north, and his power and exploits in northern Europe were already legendary, and it was known that he was quite interested in English affairs. If Tostig could convince this king to throw his weight behind the cause, well, that might be enough to turn everything to his advantage. And so while others were out there celebrating Christmas of 1065, Tostig was hard at work. And I wonder, as Tostig spoke of how dishonorable Harold was, and how King Edward was so weak that he couldn't even defeat a minor internal rebellion, if it occurred to him where he was, and who else Count Baldwin was related to. Because stories of how Harold couldn't be trusted, and how weak his grip on power was, how weak England was, all of that was now floating around the court of Count Baldwin. And that was news that would be very interesting to players all over Europe. And it would have been particularly interesting to Count Baldwin's other son-in-law, Duke William of Normandy. You should see me in the crowd. I'm gonna run this nothing to hell. 